My name is Zach. For those of you that don't know me, I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch. I wanna welcome you to church this morning. I'm gonna do something that I don't normally do uh, when I get started with a message, but just during worship, I believe the Lord put a few things on my heart for people, and I believe every time we gather together that the Spirit of God is here to encourage us, is here to speak to us, is here to bring life. So I'm gonna call a few people out. Cecilia Wright, are you in here? Cecilia? She's in kids, I'll tell her later. Okay, Kendrick, Kendrick Sonneman, there in the back. Yes, I see you, sir. I just felt like during worship that the Lord wanted you to know that he sees gold inside of you and this season where you're serving both here on Sunday but in the different jobs you're doing right now, that gold is being excavated and refined for something that God has for you. There's gold inside of you and I believe the Holy Spirit wants you to know that today. Uh, Criders right here. Yes, Richard and Laura, and your family. I believe that when people interact with you, that you guys have a grace and ability to help people experience Jesus, particularly his love and his joy. And I believe that as you walk in the gift of hospitality in your home, that that's gonna be a place where people encounter the Lord in powerful ways. I just wanna encourage you with that gift that's inside of you and the way that people experience you. And it's an honor to get to be your pastor, and I'm excited to see what God does through y'all's family, in your home, in the coming season. And y'all are sitting right next to the DeBrats, so here we go, DeBrats. Y'all have this creative ability in both of y'all that, that helps people see and experience God. We know that God is an artist, he created things beautiful, and through Mary Beth, through your artistic endeavors, and Alex, through your intellectual genius, y'all help people behold the majesty and the glory of God. Y'all are a gift to our church and a gift to our city. And I believe that that's how the Lord wants to use y'all in this season. So thank you for being who you are. Last one, Luke, Florence. Luke, are you in here? Luke, there you go. Luke, I know that you're in a season of building and craftsmanship and preparing homes. And I just saw that as you are preparing homes in the natural, that you're also doing something in the spiritual, that you're creating an environment in the homes that you're either working in or building or rehabbing, that you're setting a spiritual climate for whoever lives in that home or is going to move in that home. And that is a powerful ministry. We wanna honor that about you. Yeah. Amen and amen. The Spirit wants to encourage you. And hey, he doesn't just wanna speak through me. I believe that God wants to give you words for people today, that he both wants to encourage you and wants to use you to encourage someone else. So whether that's through something that you sense during a time of worship or just a general, man, I really appreciate you. Let's be people that encourage one another. I think we need it more than we realize. We are in uh, our sermon series called Sons and Daughters. Today is message 11. Uh, I've been excited to preach each time during this series, but I think I might be the most excited uh, for this message. As we've been journeying along, we've been growing as a church in renewing our minds around God's word. The fertilizing, renewing, composting power of God's word coming out of 2020. I think we all could agree that we need healthier, more life-giving mindsets, and God wants to speak to us through his word and has been speaking to us through his word to help us all be renewed in the spirit of our minds. So hopefully by now we're in week 11 that you've had time to let some of the composting power 
of God's word. Begin to renew your mind. We're entering into chapter five. Ephesians has six chapters, so we have a little bit left to go, but I'm excited for what I believe the Lord is going to do as we finish out this book over the next few weeks. So we're gonna be there today. Before we go there, though, I wanna make just a general announcement for our church. Uh, many of you have asked, kind of as the state has changed mask guidelines and uh, different places are doing different things with masks. I wanted to give you an update on where we're at with masks as a church. We recently had an overseer meeting talking about, you know, what do we do? And I just am so thankful for our overseer team who has served over the course of this last year to help us as a church operate with wisdom and love and stay focused on Jesus. We have had many long and at times heated discussions about COVID and what should we do. Uh, when we were talking more recently, it was the shortest conversation I had in our meeting. I was prepared. I was like, we're probably gonna spend an hour on this one topic. And somebody suggested an idea and it was just like there was unity of the spirit. So here's where we're at with mass. This week, will be the last week that masks are required. Next week, masks will be optional, okay? This week, they're required. Next week and moving forward, they will be optional at your choice, at your discretion. We talked about the availability of the vaccine, the decline in cases in our city and how we felt like with both of those things that for people that wanted uh, to really safeguard against that, their vaccinations and all sorts of options will continue our live stream online. And for those of you that have been begging to remove the masks, your week is next week, okay? So just so everybody knows, masks are not the defining thing about us. Jesus is the defining thing about us. And so some of you are excited about that. Uh, the masks, some of you are not, I understand, but we're going to stay focused on Jesus and hopefully we're going to laugh because as I thought about this last year, I mean, we've had to really utilize our ingenuity as a generation to adapt to all the curveballs that have been thrown at us over the last uh, 12, 14, 16 months has just taken a lot of ingenuity. And so before we get into God's word today, uh, I just want us all to laugh and appreciate some of the ingenuity of our generation. I find when you go through hard things, Oh, if you hold on, hold on, I gotta set it up a little bit. When uh, my wife and I, when we go through hard things, we look for reasons to find joy in the midst of them or laugh in the midst of them. It helps alleviate the pressure that we've been through. So I found a few images or people who've been especially creative with their masks over the last year, and I thought that you would appreciate them, and this is an honor to all of us who have improvised over the last year to navigate COVID. So could you put the first picture up? Uh, this guy is in a scuba diving mask in the grocery store. I believe I did see this gentleman uh, at my local grocery store walking in. My kids were like, Dad, that person's wearing scuba gear. Ne next person used a mask of a shoe to protect himself, you know, you're going into a place, you maybe left your mask at home, right? And so you're like, well, I gotta do what I gotta do. Next picture, uh, this is a paper bag with one hole in it. I don't know how that works. You scientists can tell me, but he is thoroughly covered. Next one is full scuba gear. Full scuba gear in the grocery store that looks like a Whole Foods. So if you go to Whole Foods and you see somebody there and that, tell him hello for me. Next one, a party hat, right? You're on the way to the party, you gotta go to the grocery store, you forgot your mask, what a perfect gift. And this next one, I don't know how it's uh, possible, what you're about to see. So kids, don't try this at home, but 
using a plastic bag. I, 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 don't, I don't know, but to everyone who has been creative over the last year, we salute you uh, and what an adventure we have been on and will continue to be on. So this week, mass. Next week, mass are optional. Okay, let's jump into the message. So good, I agree. I know that y'all didn't know whether you could really laugh at those or not, but you'll laugh in the car on the way home. It's just, we have to laugh at ourselves or else it just is, can get too heavy. A life can get too heavy. Okay, here's where we're gonna be, Ephesians chapter five. So I wanna encourage you to take out your Bibles today. If you have something to write with, pull that out. Otherwise, you can pull out your phone or whatever device you use to take notes. I believe God wants to speak to you today. And I want to encourage you to write stuff down so you can carry it into the week ahead. As we get started, I want to ask you a question. Uh, do you or your family have a life motto? Do you have a saying or a slogan that you hold on to to try and navigate life with wisdom? Some of us get those from our family. Sometimes we look to famous people or people we view as successful, and we kind of learn their rules for life. I found some uh, in researching for this message um, that I wanted to share with you. This first one is by Robert Louis Stevenson, the author, who said, don't judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds that you plant. Great advice. Don't focus on the outcomes of today. Focus on what seeds are you planting. I like that one. Uh, next one was from Booker T. Washington. Success is not to be measured so much by the position that one has reached in life as by the obstacles which one has overcome, right? So he's, he's pointing out, don't focus on kind of what position you get to, focus on the obstacles that you have overcome, and that's what makes you successful. I like that one. Uh, my kids um, read a lot of different books, and the younger ones enjoy Dr. Seuss. So here's a Dr. Seuss life motto. You have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself in any direction you choose. Profound wisdom from Dr. Seuss. Uh, last one, Eleanor Roosevelt, do one thing every day that scares you. So you're trying to make decisions, just think what's the scariest option and go for that. That was her life motto, okay? So you probably have a life motto. The Apostle Paul with the church at Ephesus, and I believe the Holy Spirit with us today, is turning a corner in the book, and now he's beginning to speak to the church about in light of who God is and what God has done, how then are we to live, or how then are they to live? And he gives them what he hopes would be their life Motto, one short, simple principle that they would latch onto and use to navigate life. Paul is speaking to them like a spiritual father, a seasoned follower of Jesus, and he's speaking to people he deeply cares about. He's speaking to people that he wants to thrive in God. He wants them to experience all of the rich and abundant life that Jesus has for them. And so he's trying to help them with one simple motto, to help them navigate life. It's Ephesians chapter five, verse one. The word says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I'll read it again. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
So Paul is breaking down all the theology, all the truth that they've learned. That they've learned. He's saying, hey, this is where the rubber meets the road. What I want you to do as you navigate life is with the same love that Jesus has loved you, I want you to love other people. That's your rule for life. That's your motto. He doesn't give them a 700-page handbook. He doesn't give them lots of rules and procedures that they need to memorize. This is why people say at times that Christianity is not really a religion. It's a relationship, right? What their meaning is, hey, Paul is saying, out of the way that Jesus has loved you, out of your relationship with him, the love that you have received from him, love others. Follow that example. Walk like him. I'm going to refer to this as the Jesus way of life. And it's this motto that Paul wants the disciples in Ephesus to adopt because he knows that this, living this way, living this Jesus life, loving like Jesus has loved them, will lead them into greater life. It only makes sense. Jesus is the author of life. Jesus is the fountain of life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come follow me. I've come that you may have abundant life, life and life to the full. And as we follow him, as the Ephesians followed Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, they were going to experience more and more and more of the rich life that Jesus desired to give to them. And if we will follow the Jesus way of life in our generation, you and I will experience more and more and more of the abundant life that Jesus wants to give to us. That doesn't mean that life will always be easy. It doesn't mean that life will always work out like you planned. It doesn't mean that things will always come together. It doesn't mean you'll never get sick, never lose a job, never go through hard times. It doesn't mean any of those things. But in the midst of a fallen world, in the midst of the challenges of life, if you and I and if the Ephesians would embrace the Jesus way of life, we will encounter him and we will share in his life, a life not dictated by our circumstances, but dictated by his presence and the life that is there. So he knew that if the Ephesians would follow this man, this will lead you to the good things in life. And the Holy Spirit wants us to know today if we will follow the Jesus way of life. If we'll love in the way that he has loved us, he will lead us following that motto, will lead us to the good things in life. This matters because walking this way, this way of Jesus' life, it will increase your life and mine. Another reason why I believe Paul wants them to know this is that when our focus in life is on God's love for us and letting that be the controlling influence for our decisions and relationships, it builds a healthier mindset. I read studies this week about mental health scores and people who believed in a loving God and that a loving God correlated with stronger, healthier mental health, more vibrant thoughts in your mind, right? So Paul wants them to have healthy minds. That's why I want you to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and the Holy Spirit wants us to have healthy mindsets. And so if our focus is on God's love for us and that being the controlling impetus for our actions, it's gonna lead to a healthier mindset for us. So more life, a healthier mindset. And number three, why does this matter? Because Paul knows if they will embrace the Jesus way of life, it will bless others. They'll leave the world better than they found it. The world will look more like heaven than when they came on the scene. 
right? When we love with the, what the excuse me, when we love with the love that Jesus loved us, that's a tongue twister. When we love with that kind of love, it makes us a blessing to others, a blessing to the world around us. You'll leave a legacy of love in people's lives. So he wants the Ephesians to know this because he wants life for them. He wants them to embrace the Jesus way of life because he wants health for them. He wants them to embrace the Jesus way of life because he wants to see the world look more like the kingdom of God than it does today. And those same things are true for us 2,000 years later. The Holy Spirit wants us more than all the other mottos, more than the things our parents taught us, more than the sayings our grandparents gave us, more than the quotes of this famous person or that famous person, the Holy Spirit wants all of us to embrace the Jesus way of life, of imitating his love, of receiving his love, and letting that guide us in the way we relate to other people. That's what the Holy Spirit wants for us. That's our motto. Now, Paul transitions. And my hope before we transition in this passage is that every single one of us today that you came to church today, my hope and prayer for you is that you leave today inspired and challenged, not only by God's great love for you, but with the calling that you would love others in the way that Jesus has loved you, that you would leave her today with fresh inspiration, fresh conviction, fresh challenge of all of us embracing that Jesus way of life. So Paul's gonna move on from verse two into verse three, and he's going to get to application. Well, what does this look like in real life? I love Paul because he does not want things to stay kind of in just a heady realm. He doesn't want it to stay in a Sunday school class or a church service. He wants to take these truths of who God is and what he's done, and he wants it to come into our lives and to be lived through us. That this wouldn't just be a known theology, this would be a lived and practiced theology. And so he's going into application. What does this look like on Monday? What does this look like Tuesday night? What does this look like when I'm trying to make a decision about a job or trying to make a decision about a relationship or I'm thinking about this? He's going to get into it right now. So I wanna make sure that you see he's not adding to the rule. He's not giving more rules or a subset of rules. He's getting into application. How does the Jesus way of life, how does it apply to these very practical ways that he's going to cover? And actually for the rest of the book, the rest of chapter five, the rest of chapter six, he just spends time on applying this one motto to all of the Ephesians' lives. And the Holy Spirit wants to help us see how it applies to our life, wants to help us see the implications for our life. So verse three, he says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So he hits on a few major areas of life where he's going to take this principle and apply it. He hits on the area of their sex lives and gets into sexual morality. He hits on the area of their finances and starts to speak about greed. He hits on the area of their speech and starts to 
uh, speak to them about using their words to tear people down. Uh, Jasper, could you bring me that water, buddy? Right there. Using their words to tear, tear people down. These are practical areas that we all, thank you, son, that we all can relate to. That Paul wants us to see how does this Jesus way of life intersect with these very real situations that you and I live every day. Now, I gotta be honest, so far, guys, I'm preaching better than you guys are giving me feedback, so if you could turn the feedback up. There we go, this is good. Now, when we started talking about these things, I realized it gets a little uncomfortable, because it's like, oh, what's the pastor gonna say now? Uh, those are some spicy topics, some challenging topics, some contentious topics. Uh, he's gonna go from these things into their households, into their workplaces, but he's starting right here with what happens in their hearts and in their mouths. Uh, and so he hits on those things, and I find to really be able to understand why is he emphasizing those words, why is he emphasizing those things right now, that we actually have to start a little bit further down in the verse, with the words that probably made most of us feel the most uncomfortable in church on Sunday morning, and that's with God's wrath, the light and airy topic of God's wrath. That's what we're gonna focus in on because I believe as we renew our minds around God's wrath, it's going to help us make sense of why. What is Paul trying to say with telling the believers to avoid sexual morality, telling them to avoid impurity, telling them to avoid greed, telling them to avoid coarse and improper speech? Why is he going there? If we can understand God's wrath, we'll better understand what Paul is trying to say and we'll better be able to walk the Jesus life that God has for us. Okay, and to do this, I have an illustration for you. You might be wondering why the golf clubs were up on the stage. I am not a golfer. Uh, my dad is, my grandfather is. Thank you, Noah Thatcher, for loaning me some golf clubs for this illustration. Now, when we start to talk about God's wrath, everyone has an image that comes to mind. In your mind, every single one of us, none of us come to the table with a blank slate on this, right? For many of us, I would argue, the image that we have in our minds is God, kind of with a golf club, hope I don't hit something up here, kind of with a golf club, just ready to smack someone out of anger. I think the first time I thought about God's wrath was in college. I started out at a state school, and there was a gentleman who would come to the quad where everyone hung out. And he would come dressed in black every day. He'd be there at 10 a.m. He'd have a bullhorn a sound system, and he would be preaching boldly about God's wrath and how all of us were going to hell. And he would do this day in and day out. And I just remember as a student not knowing what was going on and just being like, why is this guy so angry? And why does he seem so excited about me being an object of God's wrath and that I'm destined for hell, right? He was my image of the golf club, just ready to smack someone. I imagine that you have similar impressions in your mind. Maybe not all of us, but many of us when we start talking about God's wrath. And so it feels a little bit like, okay, I like that loving Jesus part. Like Jesus loves me. Oh, I like that. God's wrath? Same passage? Is this like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde? Like, which version of God are we getting, right? And so many of us live conflicted. And what I hope to do today is to help all of us better see the wrath of God.
Because what I want you to know, and if everyone just lean forward with me, if you've grown up or been exposed or been taught that God's wrath is like the angry golfer just so mad and ready to smack you, that's a misrepresentation of God. God's wrath is real, and I wanna teach you about it today, but I want you to know this image of God, that is a misrepresentation of who he is. You can lean back now, okay? So, first thing that you need to know, when we start talking about God in the world, God means a thousand different things to a thousand different people, right? For believers, what we say when we start talking about God is that we're talking about God expressed in Jesus, that when we see Jesus, we see God, that he is the exact representation of God, that he makes the invisible God visible. Jesus said of himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. His disciple John said, none of us have ever seen God except God, the only Son, except Jesus, and through Jesus, God is made known. And we've seen him, we've beheld his glory, his glory full of grace and truth. So when we start talking about God, we're talking about Jesus. And when you make that distinction, when we all realize that and be like, yeah, that is true. That is what I believe. When we realize that, we realize that God's wrath as an isolated expression of him just ready to smack people does not square with who we see in Jesus. When you read through the gospels, you see, whoa, whoa, whoa. I think this must be like a way oversimplification of who God is, because the God that I see in Jesus is much more complete and robust and nuanced than just one image of God ready to smack people when you screw up, okay? So that represents the entire golf club set. If you're a golfer in here, how many golfers do we have? We got a few, okay, I thought we might have more. How many people have been to Top Golf? We got more people that have been to Top Golf? Okay, great. So. If you've ever watched golf on the Masters or you've ever played golf, you realize no real golfer just shows up to the course with just one club. Nobody shows up with golf clubs in a Target bag. Nobody shows up with golf clubs in, you know, kind of a suitcase. They always have a bag like this. Sorry. And it's always a series of clubs. When we start talking about God, I'm talking about the clubs, the bag, the whole thing expressed in the person of Jesus, okay? And when we start talking about Jesus, we quickly realize some certain things about him. Namely, that Jesus is ultimately and fundamentally good. That Jesus described himself as the good shepherd. He's not using good there as an adjective, he's using good there as a definition. Who he is and what he does is thoroughly good. Jesus is good. Secondly, we see his disciple, the apostle John, say that God is love. And as we read through the life of Jesus, when we read about God in scripture, we see the goodness of Jesus and the goodness, the loving kindness of God over and over and over and over again. So for the sake of our illustration, that is like the bag. The bag houses the clubs. The clubs are different attributes of who God is, but this bag is what they are expressions of. And what I mean by that is the characteristic of God's mercy is an expression of his goodness and his love. The characteristic of God's righteousness is an expression of his goodness and his love. These clubs live and originate from this bag. 
Here's where my illustration breaks down. God's righteousness or holiness or justice or grace or mercy is not something that starts at God's goodness and love but gets separated from it. No, it is wholly shaped. It is an expression of the goodness and loving kindness of God. If you're with me, say amen. You guys following me? Okay. So when we notice that, then we realize as we read about Jesus and as we read about God in Scripture, Every revelation that we read of God, every story, every interaction is marked by goodness and marked by love. And there'll be times and places and stories where you leave them confused and you're like, I don't, I don't know. That, that kind of seems like, man, God's got the driver out ready to smack someone. No, no, no. Every single one, you may have to look a little longer, but every single one is an expression of his goodness and loving kindness. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter five, speaking about God. And he said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that, but be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's speaking about the loving kindness and goodness of God. And he's saying, hey, guys, I don't want you just to love people who love you. I want you to love people who love you, and I want you to love people who hate you. And his reference point is saying that's what God's like. God causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, the rain to pour on the righteous and the unrighteous, not just people who have their acts together and who do exactly what God told them to do. God's goodness and love is for everyone. It's who he is. Amen? Amen. Just as no club is used in isolation from the bag, no attribute of Jesus exists in isolation from his goodness and his love. So the first point of clarification that we need to see as we start talking about God's wrath is that this image of God's wrath ready just to destroy someone who got out of line, just, I mean, so excited about just beating someone down like that street preacher was about beating all these students down with his words. That's not what we see in Jesus. That's not who we see in him. Now his wrath is there. Don't get me wrong, we're gonna get there. But I just want you to see where we're starting from. So first note, and I'm doing quick notes today. We could spend a year on this topic, but quick notes today. God's wrath is an expression of his love and his goodness. God's wrath is an expression of his love and his goodness. Luke John 10, 1 John 4, 8, and Matthew 5. Everything God does is an expression of his love and his goodness. And his wrath is is saturated with those things, originates and is marked by an expression of his love and his goodness. You can go back and look at those verses later. Let's move on to point two. I'm gonna get out the club that will be for our sake, for God's wrath, okay? Here's the club. As we read through God's word, it's clear that God's wrath is real. But as we read through God's word, it's also clear that if we were talking in golf illustration, his wrath is not his favorite club to use. 
His wrath is not his preferred club to use. You realize golfers, if you watch them on TV, you realize they have certain clubs. The clubs do different things, have different functions. Some golfers are very good at a certain type of club. They like to use those. Others are not good, and they prefer other types of clubs. And so they'll lean to what their favorites are. A good golfer can use all the clubs, but they have favorites. They have ones that they like to use most often. When you tee off, most of the time, you're going to use a driver, right? That's what you're going to hit the ball far with, hopefully, and hopefully it stays on the fairway. If you ever play with me, it's about one in three chance that it's going to stay on the fairway. Everybody else, just watch out, okay? Um, you know, so some golfers like that. Some golfers like their putter. You'll hear about golfers being really good on the greens, right? God has characteristics that he loves to use. I would argue that his mercy is one of those characteristics, I would argue that his righteousness is one of those clubs that he's like, I want to use this. I would argue that his goodness and his blessing and his kindness and his grace are clubs that he loves to use. And I would argue that wrath is a club he will use when the job is needed, but it's not a club that he takes delight in using. In fact, for the sake of this illustration, I would say the wrath, his wrath is like a sand wedge. If you've ever played golf, you hope that the ball is not ending up in the sand. If the ball ends up in the sand, which mine does often, something has gone very wrong, right? You don't want the ball to be in the sand. You're not only leaving a day with Bible lessons, you're leaving a day with golf lessons, okay? You don't wanna hit the ball in the sand in case you were confused about that. And when the ball goes in one of those sand traps, it is very difficult to get out. If you try and get it out with a driver, it won't work. If you try and get it out with a putter, it won't work. If you try and get it out with a three iron, it won't work. They have a very specific club that's designed in a certain way called a sand wedge. And the way the wedge is designed is to help the ball lift up out of the sand and get back onto the path of life. You don't ever want to use your sand wedge, right? But if the ball gets in the sand, you've got to use it if you want that ball to get out. I would argue that's the best illustration or analogy of what God's wrath is like that he will use his wrath when the situation is warranted, when it's needed, when the other clubs won't do the trick. But it's not ever a situation where he's like, oh, I'm just, I've been so waiting to pound Stephen. Thanks for coming to church today, Stephen. That's never what God is like. That's never what he's, what he's thinking. He's only pulling that club out of it's like, man, this is the only thing that will work. And don't just take my word for it. I wanna show you from God's word uh, so point number two, and then we're going to jump into scriptures on this. God's wrath is a term used in scripture to describe the destructive consequences of sin. Consequences which are built into the sin itself. So let's slow down and walk through that. If we're envisioning the totality of God's wrath is you messed up and he's coming after you. He may have been good yesterday, he may be loving tomorrow, but today you screwed up and he's about to smack you. That wouldn't capture what scripture speaks when it speaks about God's wrath. So often in scripture, God's wrath is used to describe what happens when we choose a sinful path of life and the outcomes, the consequences are baked into the sin itself. Let me give you an example. Uh, if I choose to eat fast food, three meals a day, every day, all of my life, like that McDonald's movie, I forgot the name of it, but you guys know what I'm talking about, where the guy just said, I'm gonna eat McDonald's every day. What's it called? 
supersize me. No shame if you work at McDonald's, no shame if you love McDonald's. But this guy was gonna eat there over and over and over again. You don't even have to watch the documentary to know what happened, right? If that's all he's taking in, right, his health is going to begin to break down, right? We hear it often talked about that gluttony is a sin. Why? Because when we eat that way and we just kind of over and over and over again, it destroys our life, right? The consequences of gluttony is built into the outcome of living a gluttonous life. It's not like God's sitting in heaven and be like, perfect, I've been waiting for the day, it's on. You're, you, know, you, were, you were gluttonous, you've got this. No, no, no. It, it is the destructive consequences of sin built into the sin itself. If I choose, uh, as one of these from the passage, if I choose to live a greedy life and greed begins to own me, it will change my character. I will begin to pursue money over everything else. I will break relationships. I will walk away from my calling. I will walk away from what's right because there becomes one thing that's right to me, and that is the accrual of wealth. And so in the end, I may have a lot of money, but I will have nothing of real value. The greed will destroy me. But it's not because God is sitting up there and be like, well, you've been too greedy, so bam, calamity on your house. All your friends are going to leave you. It's like, no, no, no. All your friends left you because all you've been doing is pursuing greed and you've been uh, isolating people and breaking your word and not caring about them for years and this is where you end up. Are y'all following what I'm saying? Are you getting kind of what I, how, how I'm breaking it down? Okay. So now, well, that's nice, Pastor you know, that's, that's some nice example. That seems a little watered down. Let me go to Romans chapter one. I, I'm not gonna pick like a light and day, uh, fluffy psalm from David. I'm not gonna pick, you know, a passage from John, you know, sitting at Jesus' chest. I'm gonna go to Paul. If anybody likes, you know, to talk about God's wrath, that's Paul. He talks about it a lot, but I want you to see how he talks about it. Romans chapter one, starting in verse 18. says, the wrath of God is being revealed. So here he's talking about the wrath. Paul from Ephesians, same Paul in Romans, say the wrath of God is being revealed, not in the future, right now. It's being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. And some of you, uh, you know, that, that kind of this is your image of God, you're kind of having that feeling right now of like, oh boy, here we go. These are the passages that made me nervous. But, but look what he says, look what he says. Look in verse 21, that's verse 18. Look in verse 21. He starts talking about what does God's wrath look like? Oh man, this is just so powerful to me. For although they knew God, he's speaking about people who knew God, God had made himself plain to them, known to them. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. He's talking about humanity, but really he's talking about the story of Adam and Eve here, right? They knew God, they knew what God said, but they chose to say, we don't want to go your way, we're gonna go our own way. We're gonna listen to the serpent, we're gonna do what he said, we want to be like God. Now look what happens when they make that choice. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. So it's not, God's, God is nine iron out and he's just ready to smash somebody. It's God's like, I, I've told you, this is the way of life. That way is gonna lead to death. But this is what you seem like you have your heart set on. Just keep going back to that over and over 
and over again. So it said God gave them over. He said, okay, that's not where I want you to go, but that's where you're choosing to go. And so I'm gonna give you over to the very thing that is the desire of your heart. Well, maybe that's just a, a one-time deal. Let's look at verse 28. Same thing. It said, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So they have their minds set on things that God's like, I don't want you to think that way. I don't want that to be what's going on in your mind. I don't want that to be what you're consumed by, right? But it said they were, they, their, their minds were set. So God gave them over to the things that they wanted to set their minds on. And then look in verse 29. Here's the outcome. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. He describes what happens when we as humans choose to walk away from the author and source of life and do things on our terms. God doesn't want it, but like the father and the prodigal son story, he's like, I guess this is what you really want. I'm gonna give you over to it. I'm gonna let you go that way that's in your heart. I'm gonna let you go that way that's in your mind. That's not what I want for you, but that's what you want for you, and I'm going to respect that. And the outcome of walking away from God, the outcome of idolatry, the outcome of futility of mind, of doing life apart from the author of life is death. Death experienced through all the things that he listed, wicked, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife. That's life. And for some of us, when I'm talking right here, I'm not talking about abstract theology. Some of you and me, this is our biography. We read this and we're like, oh, you don't have to tell me that. I've experienced this. I know what life is like on my own terms apart from God, and I know how things fall apart. I get this. That's one of the examples, one of the ways that when Scripture speaks about the wrath of God, it's speaking about the outcomes in our life that are baked into our sinful choices themselves. And Scripture would speak of that as an example of the wrath of God. So what we see when we start talking about God's wrath is it doesn't exist in isolation. It's an expression of his loving kindness. It's an expression of his goodness. It's not him just one day just wanting to smack you. In fact, if you watch a real golfer get into a sand trap, they never just run in there like Happy Gilmore style and just blast it. Like they're always like super careful, almost annoying this. Like I can't watch golf because of how many times they'll like come back to it, think about it, right? Right, it's very intentional. It's very thoughtful. They wanna do it well. And when God uses his wrath, he's very intentional. It's not rash, but it is real. And here's what I need you to see. Here's what I believe God wants you to see. When God lets us experience the consequences of our sinful choices, it is an act of his goodness and his love. Paul Brand was a, a doctor who worked with patients with leprosy. And it was believed up until uh, his time that leprosy was a, a tissue disease. But Paul Brand figured out that it wasn't tissues, it was a de deadening of the nerves, that, that leprosy, you couldn't feel what happened. And so he said, people with leprosy would end up dying because they wouldn't be able to feel anymore when they put their hand on the hot stove. They wouldn't be able to feel anymore when they stubbed their toe and it got infected. They wouldn't be able to feel anymore when their back began to hurt because they were just getting older. They wouldn't be able to feel it because their nerves were dead. And because they couldn't feel pain, they didn't know to get help. 
I'm going to let that sit right there. Because people with leprosy, their nerves are dead. They couldn't feel pain. They didn't know to turn. They didn't know to get help. They didn't know what to do, right? So you just leave your hand burning on the stove because you can't feel it. Meanwhile, your hand is being destroyed. Powerful. God's wrath is like that. He lets us experience the pain of our sinful choices. Not because he's like, ah, oh, finally gotcha. No, because he's hoping that in experiencing that pain that it would wake you up and be like, man, I don't want this. I want life. When you're driving down 635 after all this construction ends in like the year 20, 2005, whenever, it's over. You know when you start to kind of go off the path, when you go off the highway, you hit those grooves that go da 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 and it's kind of, it's, it's, it's uh, startling, right? What's the point to make you be like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get back on the highway. I need to wake up. I need to get off my phone. Not that any of you would ever be on your phone on 635, but you know what I'm saying. I gotta get back in the lane, right? When God lets us feel the destructive consequences of our sin, it's just like a golfer using a sand wedge. He's using the sand wedge not to drill the ball further into the, into the sand, but to get it back on the fairway, to get it back on the green. Some of us have been through very hard things that we look back on, and it's totally my fault. That was no one else, that was me. Those were my choices, right? But what I hope that you can see today is that even in your rebellion, that God and his loving kindness and his goodness was letting you experience those things, that you might not continue in that path, but that you might return to him and the good and rich life that he wants to lead you in. If we don't feel pain, if we don't feel the consequences of our sin, our lifestyles of dysfunction will become normal to us. And we'll think this is the way life is. And God is like, I have so much more for you than that. So it's not that I want you to be hurt, but I'm going to let you feel the outcome of your choices in hopes that we can get you back on the path of life, in hopes that your heart would turn, in hopes that your mind would be changed, in hopes that you would return to me. So why am I telling you this? If you don't get this, if I don't get this, we're going to think that God's prohibitions, the things that he tells us to avoid, that he's trying to keep us from the real life. That our best life exists somewhere outside the Father's house. We're gonna think, man, he's just, these rules, I don't like them, telling me to avoid this stuff. God's just keeping me from joy. He's a kill joy. No, no, God is a give joy. And he's trying to help you see, hey, you go down that road, it does not end well for you. You may think you have it handled, but you don't have it handled. I, I'm the eternal God. I see the beginning and the end. I know you. Like, I know what leads to life. Like, this is the way. If we don't understand this about God's wrath, right, we won't realize and we'll think, man, the real life, the best life exists outside of the Father's house and the Father's instruction. We'll get sucked into things that promise life that may be popular in our generation, popular in our school, popular in our family, maybe normal in our workplace, but in the end they lead to death. You and I will normalize the dysfunction like lepers that's actually killing us. Okay, 
Now let's go to the third point on that, because that's not the only aspect of God's wrath. We have that aspect, but there's another side. Just like when you hit a golf shot, you can leave your club open and it goes pew. That's what I do a lot. Or you can try and adjust and you turn the club a little more and you, it goes this way. What you really want to do is you want to hit it straight. So I want to make sure that you guys see both sides of God's wrath. One is it speaks of the consequences, but there's a, another dimension. This term is used in scripture to describe God actively bringing an end to evil and establishing justice. God actively bringing an end to evil and establishing justice. We see this in Revelation chapter 11. It says this in verse 16. It said the 24 elders were seeing heaven at the end of time who were seated on the thrones before God. They fell on their faces. They worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. There's that word. The time has come for, the, for judging the dead and for rewarding the servants and prophets and your people who revere your name, both great and small. Look at this. And for destroying those who destroy the earth. So a second dimension of God's wrath is not just about it destroying you, the consequences of your choices. But when our, when our choices destroy the lives of others, there is a time and a place where God says, this far and no more. I remember being in Uganda on a mission trip and meeting a gentleman there who was a cab driver by the name of George. And George's hands looked like melted crayons. And I asked him, I said, you know, tell me about your life. Tell me about, you know, just getting to know him. He started talking about his hands and he said a group called the LRA, which stands for the Lord's Resistance Army, would come through their village and they would terrorize people. Driven out of greed, driven out of lust for power, they would come through and they took his hands and they held them in the fire so that he would live in fear of them and not be able to do life on his own, right? And if we don't realize the active side of God's wrath, if we don't realize that, we can't look at a person like George and tell them about the goodness and the loving kindness of God. But when George hears about God's wrath, that God cares about your pain, God cares about what's been done to you, and God is going to come and he is gonna set things right. He is gonna make these wrong things right. It actually matters. Your suffering matters. When we have that word about God's wrath for George, that's the best news ever. And when scripture speaks about God's wrath, so often it's speaking to oppressed people who have been beaten down by the very things that Paul is encouraging the Ephesian church to avoid. Beaten down by people's sexual morality. Beaten down by people's greed. Beaten down by people's speech. And lives shipwrecked. And they're wondering, God, do you even care? Are you even out there? Right? And God is saying, it's for this reason my wrath is coming. Because of how many people's lives have been shipwrecked by these things. And it is not okay. And you may not be George, but I've been a pastor of this church long enough to know many of us have had lives that felt shipwrecked, not by our own sin, but by the sin of others. And I want you to know God sees, God cares, and God is going to move and he is going to set things right, whether in this life or in the end. And that is the other side of his wrath. Now, back to our text. We're gonna, we're gonna head to the end here, okay? So, when Paul is saying, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual morality or any kind of impurity or greed because these are improper for God's holy people. 
nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. When Paul is saying this, he's pointing out that when we choose not to embrace the Jesus way of life, but when we choose to live these other ways, we're not only walking in ways that bring us death, but we're walking in ways that bring death to others. There's so much more I could say on this, but just for the sake of time, I wanna come back to, if you and I, like the Ephesians of old, if we will embrace our new family motto, you may have had a family motto growing up, but as a follower of Jesus, you got a new family motto. If we'll embrace what Paul says in Ephesians 5.1, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If we'll walk in this way, it will bring life to us and it will bring life to others in these key areas of our lives. And so as we close, I wanna invite you to stand and we're just gonna say that passage together just like you would say a motto. So on the count of three, it'll be on the screen. And I'll start us out and then let's just read it together. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen. If we'll do that, it will increase our life, it will increase our mental health, and it will leave the world better than we found it. Now, we're gonna move now from teaching to worship, from, infor from information to revelation. I want you to remember that this is not abstract theology. I rarely use my, uh, write my stuff out, but I, I've got it written out today because I wanna make sure you hear this. Earlier in Ephesians chapter two, God had called them children of wrath. And in, as they stood in their wrath, that they were condemned. But then he talked about Jesus. And Jesus had come not to condemn them, but to save them. Not to take it out of them, but to be a sacrifice for them. That heavenly blood transfusion that defeated sin, that defeated rebellion, that defeated the devil, and defeated the death, and restored the Ephesian church to life. His original hearers, this is their story. They know that Jesus had come for them and that he, out of his grace, not through their own striving effort, but he, out of his grace, the master golfer, so to speak, had gotten them out of the wrath of God that they had so experienced and marked their lives and had restored them to the path of life. And that's not just the Ephesian story, that's our story, church. That's what Jesus has done for us. And so as we close today, I wanna challenge you to turn this from just information into revelation, from teaching into worship, and let the glory of God, the goodness and the loving kindness of God, the grace of God that has come for you and me, dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath, just, man, I couldn't do anything but operate in these things. And God has come and brought us out. So as we close, let's celebrate together with joy in our hearts all that God has done on our behalf.